I don't pay attention to the world ending. It's ended for me several times. But then it just began again the following morning. That opening quote was the late, great Charles Bukowski, who I endeavored to consider, came very close to purchasing one of his books this weekend. His first book, to be exact, Post Office, about his life delivering for the post office. Not about it, but as it happened. And as he wrote the book, as he wrote the book about working for the post office, but not about working for the post office, but while he was working for the post office. (laughs) The point is, it's the grit of the book. It's the details in between that are always fascinating, particularly with a guy like that, Bukowski. He kind of, uh, he's one of those characters that are just kind of like the, the grit of life and kind of I don't know, maybe the antithesis of Americana, you know, he was very, very of that world, kind of a weird subterranean world of bars and dirty ashtrays and uh, day drinking and uh, womanizing and all that. Um, he was a sub, he was the, in a, there's a book called, uh, what's it called, uh, the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And uh, the opening, kind of the prologue or the introduction brings him up <clears throat> immediately to the point where basically he had written for years and years and with no success, just submitting manuscripts unsolicited to publishing houses for his books with no no success until finally he's just like, ah, fuck it, whatever happens, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know, life, life just has to keep going on, so if, if I get published, I do, if I don't, I don't, fuck it, and then finally some, like, uh, kind of a boutique press, uh, contacted him about his his first book post office he's like i don't know fuck fucking publish it if you want i don't give a fuck so after all the years of putting it on the gas pedal you know leaning on the gas pedal trying to get get himself published he uh he only had success when he finally just didn't give a fuck but that isn't really the essence of americana i wouldn't say the driving to be that that driving force of of uh, what we what we deem ourselves as this hard working American ideology that if you roll up your sleeves and you work hard and it'll all pay off. Well, that's a bunch of horseshit, and we've kind of come upon that realization in the last couple decades, I would imagine, where it's like, yeah. You know, 90% of rich people, it's all inherited wealth. So please don't give me the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps argument because it's a bunch of horseshit. And uh, 
save that for the ideologues that are, you know, halfway through their halfway through their uh, economics major or their business majors or their political science major careers. So I treat this kind of as a column now, like an audio column. You know, I'm a I'm not a columnist, but for lack of a better sense of anything, it's just kind of my my op-ed piece that I like to sling out into the ether a couple times a week. And uh <clears throat> excuse me. Whoa. This week was no different. This weekend was even no less different. I was kind of interested in the seamy underbelly of life and how it how it corresponded with the notion of Americana, what we consider Americana. What do we consider Americana? Well, it's kind of like the vintage the vintagey notion of you know, back in the day, turn of the century type stuff, old black and white photos of uh old Ringling Brothers circuses, Disney movies, um, kind of when the old west, the frontier kind of was still, you know, interesting. And we were just really kind of forging a path for ourselves in the infancy of everything when everything was new, you know, you know, back when ideas were original and they weren't a they weren't a uh, convoluted convolution of a convoluted convolute so but you know what i mean it's like <clears throat> americana is like the old folk tales paul bunyan and the blue ox uh casey jones riding the train like the grateful dead sing about that really happened that was a real Roughly based on a real person. His name wasn't Casey Jones. It was like something Paul. Paul Jones. Or a variation of that. I don't know why I'm breathing so hard. but um, May 1st, 1900. The mythical Casey Jones. Ran his steam locomotive into the. Into the, uh, the, the rear of another train. And he died. And they mythologize it in the song. Driving that train. High on cocaine. But he wasn't high on cocaine. Matter of fact. um, The story bears him out. That he was actually more of a teetotaler. Didn't drink or anything. But but that's kind of Americana I guess. You know. The early days. The weird appliances. You know. That sterility of 50s suburban life, you know, Americana. You know, it's women in beehive hairdos, you know, and guys smoking pipes. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's events. It's um, John F. Kennedy. It's... Charles Manson, it's 
it's just being an American, you know? And so this weekend I was kind of looking for some kind of vert, like a book on the kind of the seamy underbelly of life. And, um, so Saturday after work, well, okay. So Friday again, I was out till like 10 and then I woke up the next day, got my, uh, got my assignment, knocked it out. And then after work, I had, uh, wandered over to, I was looking for this guy, this writer. He was, uh, his name is Nick Toscas. I think is, I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing his last name right. T-O-S-C-H-E-S. But he's written, he's done a lot of biography on, uh, music, musical interests. Like, um, he did one on Dean Martin called Dino, which I'll bet is fascinating because, Toscas is this, uh, if oh, I'm saying his name right too, but he's kind of this hard living guy. He passed away. I think he died of cancer. He seems like a real interesting, real gritty type who would write about kind of the gritty underbelly of life. Um, because the other uh, biography he wrote was about Jerry Lee Lewis called Hellfire, which I think... If it's about a crazy guy, written by a crazy guy, it's got to be pretty damn good. And if anybody knew about Americana and the seamy underbelly of life, it would be this guy writing about Jerry Lee Lewis, the uh, the cousin of uh, Jimmy Swaggart and Mickey Gilly. How fascinating is that, too? Like, you got Jimmy Swaggart and Jerry Lee Lewis are cousins, Okay. How Americana is that? That's pretty fucking like... There's nothing more Americana than evangelicals. You know, going all the way back to, you know, the little tent out in the Midwest. The little raggedy little tent where there aren't any trees, you know. And people are lined up in folding chairs inside listening to some snake oil salesman, you know. Some charlatan telling them about... God and the afterlife and stuff, you know, like in that Neil Diamond song. Brother loves it, brother loves traveling salvation show. Great song. But that's Americana right there. That's a little raggedy tent preaching the word. So, but I went into uh, Barnes and Noble, the fucking faceless monolithic corporation to ask for a book with flavor. They had none. And matter of fact, the book Hellfire, the Jerry Lee Lewis biography, uh, can't even get, you couldn't even get it. Like it just disappeared. Like it was like uh, some kind of contraband. Like it was some black market thing. You know, anything with flavor. No, you can't have. No, no. How about a cookbook by Rachel Ray? Go fuck yourself. But, uh, <clears throat> so I was like scratching my head like, okay, well, you got anything? Anything by this guy. Just I just want to see kind of what writing style we're talking about, what subject matter we're, just anything. And um, all they had was 
It was a book that this guy Toscas had written the uh, introduction to called Nightmare Alley. And it's by William Lindsay Gresham, who uh, himself was quite an interesting cat. <clears throat> but the book being reissued uh, with this introduction by by Nick Toscas, who was evidently a Gresham scholar. He was a scholar of this guy, William Lindsay Gresham, who only had a couple of books. But the this was the book that made this guy Gresham famous. It's called um, Nightmare Alley. And um, it's, it's a noirish crime tale from uh, 1946. And um, it's just about like uh, circus performers and a guy who, uh, let's see, he basically decides to, uh, let's see, the novel uses the cards of tarot as chapter titles, providing both symbolism and metaphor. The story centers on the carnival with also its advertisements of encounters with the supernatural. <clears throat> so, tells the story of Stan Carlson, a carnival hustler who later becomes a religious charlatan. It is a bleak picture that Gresham paints of a man seeking escape from the strange world of sideshows and geeks. The novel was collected by the Library of America as one of the most notable crime novels of the 1930s and 40s, but it's not so hard-bitten as many others of its like. Sometimes sympathetic Stan has religious yearnings and caters to others with the same yearnings, even if he does so disingenuously, looking only for enough money to get away from the whole mess. So, as Toski notes, as, as piercing as the psychological probings of Nightmare Alley are, eerily the tarot alone is bestowed at times with a hint of ominous gravity and credence amid all the other spiritualist cons of the novel that are to Gresham and his characters nothing more than nothing more than suckers' rackets. Okay, Nightmare Alley gives one a sense of what the Greshams were trying to leave behind here is the claustrophobic world of society's disconnects and strays creatures still human but some so geekish so odd that people would pay money just to see them they may also see parts of themselves in them so that's right away you got me hooked and i think that's awesome i think that that's that seamy underbelly you know it is so prevalent kind of in our upbringing our, our awakening as a country you know so so I got a little excited I didn't get the book but I probably will but it got me thinking like yes that's it the grittiness the underbelly the dark side of things you know we're all fascinated by it most of us 94% of us aren't we and um so you know it's it's got that. I don't know. There's there's a handful to me. There's a handful of people that really embody that or grasp it or understand it or communicate it well. People like Tom Waits, um, fucking brilliant. 
Um, and then the guys that kind of chronicle and and yeah, and put a show and put a spotlight on people like Tom Waits, you know, people like um, Jim Jarmish, the director who is it's this he is a director that would know about or connect with or explain to you or give you a give you a showcase of the underbelly of life you know in his movies like Stranger Than Paradise Down By Law stuff like that stuff that the movies that Tom Waits is in Tom Waits is a great musician who's also a really good I mean fucking great actor uh, he played Renfield in, Dra- in uh, Coppola's version of uh, Dracula but his, I don't know, those early films of Jim Jarmusch, the black and they're black and white too, which is cool. We show these guys kind of in breaking out of jail cells in New Orleans and uh, wife beaters and just and just trying to survive. You know, is really there's real and and. What really is cool about his movies and uh, showcasing these kind of characters is the the pointlessness of it. Really, there's no. I think it was him or somebody writing about him said, you know, the pointlessness of life. If there's such a pointlessness of life, why should there be a point to any film? Okay, touche. <laughs> why not? Because just look at a snippet of life. It it doesn't have a tidy beginning and it doesn't have a tidy end. It just it's a section of your life, like a section of a big long, you know, four foot subway sandwich that you bought for Super Bowl Sunday. You know, you only get a section of it. You're not gonna eat the whole thing from beginning to end. You're just gonna get a you know, three inch section for yourself. If that makes any sense. But <clears throat> so when I got back Saturday night, I was pretty pumped. I wanted to watch some kind of crazy stuff. I wanted to, I was inspired. And I'd been wanting to watch this, excuse me, gosh, documentary, which I'd seen. I wanted to show my lady actually, but it was um, the documentary about Robert Crumb. Simply simply called Crumb, and uh, he was an underground, he was an underground um, artist back in the, you know, 50s and 60s, and he kind of embodied that, (laughs) he kind of embodied that time period where, like, we had the sterility of the 50s, and this family, the Crumbs, there's three brothers and two sisters. The two sisters declined to be interviewed. And um, so you're just left with Robert Crumb, who is this is a genius illustrator, just writing these, or uh, drawing these just mind-blowing drawings. And with no formal training or 
no art school, no nothing. You're just kind of an odd geek, this kind of Luddite of sorts. And uh, I was wearing some kind of tweed jacket and a weird little bowler hat and like these glasses that were like about as thick as the Hubble telescope lens and a stringy little mustache just walking around kind of hunched over just drawing just drawing the most just craziest conceptions of these but what I would assume is this his interpretation of things and uh and it was pretty disturbing stuff but I think it was like a filter through which he saw life based on how he was raised by kind of this overbearing kind of angry drill sergeant of a father who you know was kind of this by the sounds of it was the the definition of kind of the straight laced 50s god fearing you know white male suburbanite and uh his their mother was uh addicted to pills she was on amphetamines as as a lot of 50s housewives were to just to cope with probably the loneliness of life and uh and to keep up with i don't know the demands of being lonely so she just kind of babbled incessantly and uh and it had a, obviously you know it there was some interesting dna floating around in that family because all three brothers there's charles crumb the oldest and then uh, robert crumb and then there's uh the youngest was maxim maxim crumb they called max and all three of these guys were just phenomenal uh illustrators with no formal training just brilliant stuff like fucking brilliant like mind-blowing crazy shit and i think it was like a kind of a reaction to just growing up in this insanity house this embodiment of the 50s of americana of just like you know when you got back from the war and you got a job and you bought a house and you raised a family and you just you got a tv and then you all just sat around the tv and you watched some bullshit and then you got a new dishwasher and then you know you got a new dryer and that was exciting and then your neighbor got a dryer and then you wanted to get a bigger dryer and then he wanted to get a bigger dryer than yours and then you wanted to get a bigger dryer than his and it was just insanity but um so i think that the only way to respond to act out or to make sense of it all is just to kind of turn inward like these three brothers did and they were just Robert Crumb was the only one that had of any kind of I don't know any kind of lack of maladjustment and he was pretty maladjusted he had a lot of his drawings are just um, full of like uh, full of like uh, misogyny and just a reflection of kind of this racist you know, this racist kind of world that they were living in the 50s, you know, and how, how he kind of filtered it and saw it and then turned it back around on society and uh, not with any intent, but just it was really just gnarly shit. 
it was kind of his, uh, it was him kind of like puking up like all this regressed or repressed repression, you know, of uh, growing up in this insane household of these fucking whack jobs. So his older brother was basically picked on for the entire entirety of his of his school career and uh never never adjusted out of that and then his younger brother was just kind of he tagged along with the other two brothers they started like little comic books when they were in school which were you know school-aged just fucking amazing art even in even in like ninth tenth grade you know sixth seventh eighth ninth these fucking elaborate disturbing comics that were just kind of this byproduct of this crazed household but ultimately it was just too much for crumbed brothers who just could never adapt to just normal society and his older brother just never left the house. He just never left the house. He just kind of like gave up hygiene and um, didn't, uh, you know, was just petrified of women and just people in general and just sat upstairs in his mother's house and just read books and, uh, and didn't brush his teeth. His younger brother, Max lived in some kind of skid row hotel in San Francisco and just uh, practiced like these strange kind of medit- meditations and uh, had all these just bizarre drunk, just bizarre. This is fascinating. Just, just, it was a reaction, all of this, but, but ultimately it would just be, it would be too overpowering. And, um, and uh, Robert Crumb's older brother, Charles, ended up taking his own life a year after the uh, documentary. But it was just this, just this devastating kind of mental, uh, uh, I don't, yeah, it was just hard for them to just ever cope with just what, what was a healthy outlook on life, you know? Because they started from such a strange, strange angle, but so then, then after that, I ended up watching. Uh, I just kind of I, I I binged like these crazy ass kind of seemingly counterculture, somewhat music related, because uh, Crumb was like in with the underground culture. Hung out with Janis Joplin, not hung out, but like he was in that crowd that hate at. Like he wanted to kind of be a counterculture, hippie type, but he was just too much of a square. But he was still, you know, he'd show up in his tweed jacket and his his little his little fedora or this funky straw hat or whatever the fuck he was wearing and his big Hubble telescope glasses and just looked like looked like a just stood out like a square. But but you know he drew. Uh, you know, people wanted him to draw album covers. They all wanted him, you know, the Rolling Stones, Janis Joplin. Like, like he became, like, he's, I mean, he's, he, in the end, he ended up trading a book, like a, a suitcase of his sketches for a house in France. He's like, I'm done with American society. I'm out. Traded just a book of his sketches 
for a house in France. Okay. So, so, uh, so I moved on. I binged. I just started binging. I binged the, uh, the next show, the next documentary was, uh, the somewhat underwhelming Jim Jarmusch documentary about the Stooges, Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And that was, that was pretty, it was good. Like I don't, you know, Iggy Pop is another piece of Americana that um, is just another outcropping of our reaction to dealing with this horse shit that we're uh, expected to digest as, as, as what they call life. And so this kid, Jim Osterberg, who would become known as Iggy Pop, grew up in Detroit in, uh, in a trailer. And uh, his parents lived in a trailer. And he convinced them to let him take the master bedroom so he could put his drums in there. And he would just practice drums all day in this trailer. And the kids would make fun of him and say, ah, your car is bigger than your house. And he made it a point to... you know, to show these guys a fuck you and his music that became the Stooges and then became Iggy Pop was just an answer to all that, to a revolt, you know, he, his shows were just these deliberate, just insanity trips, just people didn't know what to make of these guys. And I, it really, the, the, the film that's called Gimme Danger really captured that because that was basically, he just, he went in head on with these guys, just, and it was punk, it was, it was a, it was a reaction to the sterility again of Americana and society and the underbelly of life and just going on stage and people throwing bottles at you and spitting and fucking throwing shit at you and he, I don't know if he created the stage dive or invented the stage dive but he fucking oh he 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 made it it's he made it it he made it his bitch. Um. Yeah, he didn't get caught every time when he was stage diving. This motherfucker was one of the more bloodier performers that ever. Uh, that ever took the stage, man, and it was just insanity. It was it was insanity, but it was again it was a reaction. It was a reaction to living in a trailer, living, being, being talked at, being put down, being judged, being, you know, this, this was a, uh, this was a scream in that direction, like, fuck you. That's kind of what punk was, too. And, um, so that was really... That was pretty good. I mean, again, I was fairly underwhelmed by Jarmish. I don't know. I, people really like that guy as a director, but again, I, I don't. Yeah, it's interesting. I like the showcase that he puts on for. He he puts a lot of um, musicians in his in his um, <clears throat> excuse me in his movies. Tom Waits and John Lurie. And um, 
Iggy Pop's in a lot of his movies. But, um, but moving on, part of the documentary, Give Me Danger, was him going off with Bowie, David Bowie, in this, it was like 1970, I think, when that much written about episode where Bowie's like, hey man, I'm addicted to coke, you're addicted to heroin, let's go live in West Berlin for for a while and fucking clean out our systems and make an album or two. And that's where Iggy Pop made uh, The Idiot and then Lust for Life, which Bowie produced The Idiot. And, uh, but great albums, man. I got a lust for life. I got a lust for life. And, um, so, so consequently, last night I decided to go down that path and I wanted to watch the movie Man Who Fell to Earth, the Nicholas Rogue classic from 76, where Bowie plays a man who fell to Earth. And uh, in true Bowie form, he plays a really good alien. And the movie is really weird, really wacky. And But it kind of epitomized what I am... Someone, someone indicating up till now that society is really strange. And what we know, what I've found in the movie, I'd never seen this before, but it's been, it's kind of got a cult following. It's had a cult following since it came out. And um, Nicholas Rogue is a really interesting director. He's got some really, uh, really wild cinema graphic type shots that are really picturesque and uh, but strange and uh, I think he was principally more of a photographer like he was a director of photography in other movies other great movies but this was his own film and he you could tell that a lot of his f- photo sequences are really coming from a, um, a director of photography viewpoint as opposed to the film director viewpoint. But <clears throat> Bowie basically is this alien that comes down, he crash lands on Earth, and he's looking for water. So he spends the uh, duration of the movie trying to figure out how to get water back to his planet, but ultimately succumbs to the trappings of society, of he becomes an alcoholic. He just stacks TV upon TV upon TV and just watches as much as a dozen TVs at once. Um, he falls in love and then treats his, you know, his, his the girl that he falls in love with just like, uh, just casts her aside and, uh, and ultimately just is corrupted, is entirely corrupted by the whole system. Until in the end, it just, it's fairly obvious that the system is one. And uh, anyway, I, the ending is really, 
it's not a tidy ending. It's just kind of, again, it's like that slice of life that you just kind of begin and then pick up and end without a tidy beginning, without a tidy anecdotal end where there's some cosmic lesson that's weaved in there. But you see what's happening and basically how life just kind of crushes the individual. It's kind of depressing in a way, but... But it was a fa- fucking fascinating movie. Fucking fascinating. And uh, and well done. My God, you know. Shout out to 70s cinema, man. So. So consequently, then, I needed a little aperitif. I needed a little something to cleanse my palate. You know. I need a little Sprite to wash down the big kahuna burger. And what that came was in the form of yet another musical documentary. This one was by Andy Summers of The Police. And man, that was fucking amazing. Because I forgot, again, how fucking huge The Police were. But that was a great band. But, you know, here we go again. It kind of started in a way that was well from Andy Summers viewpoint he was he was kind of a guitarist for hire bouncing from band to band he had a band early on a couple bands a couple little little shitty bands that didn't work one was kind of a garage band then he went to a psychedelic band then he played with Eric Burden and the Animals briefly and then just bounced around until finally he just ran into these two guys, Stuart Copeland and uh, Gordon Sumner, who, who they also call Sting. And uh, immediately just hit it off vibe, got it. There's, you know, there were four, uh, but it reduced itself to three. And from there, they just kind of started immediately, just blew out of the gates like a 200-meter sprinter in the 96 Olympics. And he was, uh, well, they were, uh, again, this was the early 70s now. Well, yeah. Yeah, they kind of formed early 70s. And it was at the, kind of the height of the punk movement, but it was kind of, and they were very much kind of coming from punk roots and um not not as quite not quite as severe as say like the sex pistols or um you know black flag and those bands but but very very much defiant of modern kind of uh modern ideas are like yeah fuck all that and but but they also didn't want to get kind of lumped in. They all they wanted to kind of distinguish themselves. So they kind of added some of their own, like a little bit of reggae, a little bit of Brit pop, and uh, became what it what what we what we eventually knew them as, which was a fucking awesome band, man. But you know, a lot of their songs too are are like if you take Synchronicity too. So they had all these. All these great albums that just came out, just one after the other. Uh, Zenyatta Mandata, uh, Ghost in the Machine, Synchronicity. I mean, just one after the other. 
Um, Regatta de Blanca, is it? Is that one? Just this funky, whacked out kind of, I don't know, reggae driven, kind of nonsensical titles. But when they their their final album, Synchronicity, um, kind of in my opinion encapsulated kind of what they were what they had been singing about all along and. Synchronicity 2, there's, there's two, there's Synchronicity, and there's Synchronicity 2, the two songs within the album Synchronicity, and Synchronicity 2 is exactly about just the mon- the mundane suburban life, this, this coming home from work and, you know, making sure your lawn is properly cut and uh, the weeds are taken care of so the neighbors don't uh, judge you and, uh, have, you know... How is your car compared to your neighbor's car? And uh, how is your life and kind of the futility of it all? And uh, so that kind of put me back on, like, getting away from, like, the dark, seamy underbelly. You got to see, that was a, just a legend. Those guys are that's a legendary band, man. That is a fuck. But but in the end, they fucking hate each. Other. They fucking hate. Well, I think they hated Sting. I think it was kind of two against one. But because Sting was, Sting just had too much going for him. You know, too good looking, too tall, too smart, too talented, too good a bass player. Too many aspirations to go solo. That ultimately dissolved them, and in the end, they just wanted to fucking kill each other. But whatever. That's what bands do. That's love, man. That's just love. So, so after that, I'm like, okay, let's 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 cap this off. Let's put let's let's put a tidy ending on this dystopic uh, run of movies that that uh, that I've been kind of just blown away by, and it can't. Well, I found to my to my credit, to my unbelievable luck, there was a uh, Amazon series. And you know what? Fuck Amazon. But um, they had a Grateful Dead series. I had, and I must have started a while back because it was partially uh, the first couple episodes. I uh, maybe I I did or didn't. It seemed like I some somebody was watching this, and I I don't know who else would have watched it other than me, but. So I picked up about episode two, and um, it's kind of told uh, at this point that uh, the second episode is told kind of from the uh, viewpoint or the uh, the narrator is the tour manager, their tour manager, who is this British, this British gentleman, and. Uh, <laughs> One thing that he had mentioned, and and I have to concur, is that the beginning of the episode, he mentions that there's this fascination with Americans that they want to look for America, you know, they're out looking for America, you know, like the Simon and Garfunkel song, America. Welcome to look for America. And um, he said that uh, 
it's it's a fascination with the fascination of America. We as Americans have this fascination with looking and navel gazing into what America is all about. And so the struggle begins because you know, he says cuz he's a British he's a British bloke and he said uh, nobody in England goes out looking for England. <laughs> Which it makes perfect sense. Like, nobody does that. Like, there's no Indian. There's nobody in Bombay, India going, I'm going to look for the real India. Like, said nobody. But we do that in America. We do that navel-gazing. You know, we want to know what... How did we get here in this crazy-ass... Weird social experiment. I was talking to a guy, one of the other guys I work with. Um... He was saying, um, he was saying that, uh, oh shit, I totally lost my train of thought, but anyway, as Americans, we, it's, it's, we're a weird complex kind of people that, uh, It's so diverse. And, but the Grateful Dead, they kind of like, they kind of ran it through their own, like they, they were the embodiment of kind of all this, you know, they kind of came up through all this and distilled it into something that, that, that they made their own. And they kind of borrowed from all these different genres as like jazz and bluegrass and mainstream, you know, hillbilly jug bands. They were a jug band, you know? And, um, oh, I know what it was. So, yeah, when I was talking to the guys working with, you know, it it dawned on me, like, we are the only country and i might you know maybe i'm maybe i'm overstating the obvious but we are the only country in the world out of the 270 plus countries we are the only one that are allowed to say whatever we want and everybody in the rest of the world i even think about canada like you just think oh yeah canada they can say whatever they want right no no absolutely not fuck no 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 there's no constitution. There's no declaration of independence anywhere else. We're it. So the rest of the world looks at us, looks on us like these fucking crazy people. They're crazy people. And we are. So the Grateful Dead kind of distilled all this kind of craziness. And they borrowed from all these different corners, you know? The old piano jazz, like Jelly Roll Morton in New Orleans. You know, the laid-back kind of jug band hillbilly washboard scraping folky bluegrass. You know, Jerry, Gar- <laughs> Jerry Garcia, like, for the for the melodic sections of, of uh, Uncle John's band, come here, Uncle John's band, he got that from like a, um, it was inspired by like an East European folk band. Like that's what, 
you know, he's borrowing from all the stuff that uh, amalgamated into what became corners of our own country. So they had, so they had folk roots. They had that Americana thing going on with Casey Jones riding that train. And, um, and just did whatever they wanted. They, what I loved about it was they didn't give a fuck like about press, publicity photos. Who gives a fuck? That doesn't have anything to do with music. They just wanted to play. And they played. They played all the time. Jerry Garcia was in like 17 bands at once. And, um, but they kind of synthesized what it was to be kind of an, well, on, uh, from the outside looking in, you know, we as Americans are the original immigrants and we led an immigrant lifestyle. But now, once we got entrenched in this, you know, we were sold this bill of goods, like you've got to go to, you know, you, you got to go to school and you get out of school and you get a job and then you get a wife and then you get married and you have kids and you buy a house and then you get a car and then you get a dishwasher and then you die. But all these guys were like, hold on, slow down. You know, I don't think so. You know, Iggy Pop in, in Gimme Danger, he said, I don't want to belong to the glam people. I don't want to belong to the hip, hip hop people. I don't want to belong to this or that. I just want to be. And I thought that was the most poetic thing you could, that you could, that you could, uh, that you could say. And, um, that's kind of what the Grateful Dead did too. Like, am I a deadhead? I think I'm a deadhead, but I'm not. Maybe I am. But, You know, we came out here and then we we all established these these little you know like in like in um what's that is it Singapore? I think it's Singapore, like they you know, they have a very diverse a very diverse uh population, but it's kind of a forced diversity. Whereas you know, there's this section for, you know, the Jews or the Muslims or the the Asians or the expatriates or the this or the that. Out here, we just show up. We're like, okay, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I make it work? And uh, and it was it 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 makes for an interesting. It makes for an interesting scenario because you are left to kind of figure things out without any kind of without any kind of interpretive kind of roadmap, you know? So you can't you can't really get a grasp of what, what America is all about because you got all these you know, you've got you got the Norwegians up in Minnesota. You've got the the homesteaders and the militia types up in Idaho, Montana. You know, you got Oregon. They're kind of a weird blend. You know, they're they're kind of like 
kind of like the Grateful Dead, like these kind of hillbilly hippies or a blend thereof. And, uh, but the best part to sh- is just to, sh- just to show up and just be, just be, man. And, um, I don't know, that's what I got out of this. I, I don't know. There's, there, there really is a, there's a, with a weird, it's a weird, dark underbelly to this country. A real dark thing that you don't want to poke too far into. You don't want to roll down too, too dark into because you start, you start finding out some interesting things about yourself and about, you know, the country that you're living in and the people and, And it's all, it's all been kind of, it's all been kind of, it's all been kind of processed through these bands, through these people, through these artists, Robert Crumb, Iggy Pop, the revolt of the Stooges, you know, the Grateful Dead, it's fascinating just the the distilled interpretation of what these guys kind of figured out through their own experiences, through going around the country, you know? I'll say this about the police. You know, they hit the ground running, they, and, they, and they ran hard, and they did a tour of the U.S., and the, what I respect about them is that they, I think they had just come out with their first album, which, first or second album, I don't know, they were pretty... They're fairly big at this point, like particularly in the UK, but then they decided to just come out to the US and they just go to these places parts of the US, the Midwest and the Southwest and the South places parts that they wouldn't know necessarily who this band was, but they're you know playing in these not big arenas, small small clubs. And what to make of these three guys? Two British guys and one American on the drums whose dad's in the CIA. And Midwest America. Could you imagine just being in in fucking in fucking uh, shit hill Iowa and going down to get a beer and the local at the local fucking gas and sip <clears throat> or the fucking you know, the local watering hole, and you go in, and there's fucking, there's the police. Like, fuck. And, uh, so, yeah, that's ballsy, man. To go in and see, right, that's the real America. You know? The guy with the trucker hat, the stained, fucking sweat-stained trucker hat, and the tattoo, and he's got a couple days' growth on his face, and he's just drinking some shitty PBR. Not trying to be ironic or hip or some kind of hipster, and all of a sudden, this British band just breaks into like fucking synchronicity. Damn. Oh, fascinating shit. I love it. I love it. It's Americana, man. It's the real deal. It's crazy shit. So, that's my audio column for today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, I don't care. 
So, anyway, happy Monday. I'll talk at you all later. Arrivederci, babies.